Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Family Medicine, a CME podcast series where each week we translate today's late-breaking clinical research and news into tomorrow's practice. I'm Frank Domino, professor in the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health at the University of Massachusetts Medical School and editor-in-chief of the 5-Minute Clinical Consult series. Be sure to visit primed.com podcast after the discussion for more information about today's article and to claim CME-CE credit. Albert is a 72-year-old retired school teacher who was brought in by his wife urgently today because he's not been acting well. He began with starting to slur his words and then seemed confused. His wife thought his face looked a little funny. She had him sit down, and within about 45 minutes, most of his symptoms resolved. Albert is generally healthy. His only meds are lisinopril for hypertension. Right now, his exam is normal. You obtain an ECG, and that also is normal. But you're worried he's had a TIA. Because of this, he's at increased risk of stroke, and now you need to figure out what to do to further evaluate Albert's risks. Hi, this is Frank Domino, and joining me today is Dr. Alan Ehrlich, Associate Professor of Family Medicine and Community Health at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. Dr. Ehrlich is also the Executive Editor of Dynamed. Good morning, Alan. Good morning, Frank. So Albert's scenario is not terribly uncommon. We, we see this more and more, especially as the population ages. Um, how big of a risk is stroke following a TIA? Well, the risk of stroke after a TIA is especially increased in the first week. The reported rates vary based on population studied. You know, do they have underlying atherosclerotic disease or do they have atrial fibrillation or things like that? But uh, rates have been reported in the past of 4 to 10 percent in the first week. And then if you look out at it, about three months, it rises to about 8 to 12 percent. More recent literature shows that the current rates are, are lower, and that's in part because we're better at treating the underlying conditions, such as carotid artery disease. And so the more recent data shows for the first week about a 2% risk, and that rises to between 35 and 4% at three months, uh, and maybe about 5% at a year. The point that is most uh, important to keep in mind is that that first week after the TIA bears a disproportionate share of the risk of subsequent strokes. And again, it's, it's a materially uh, elevated risk compared to baseline. I, I think um, it's one of those things that worries us in the outpatient setting. You see something and you realize that time is imminent. Uh, something bad can happen and typically, if it's going to happen, happens within the first week. So how do we assess Albert's risk to have a stroke following his TIA? So this has been a question that people have struggled with for a long time. And there have been these risk prediction rules that have been developed to try to help answer that question. Probably the best well-known one is the ABCD2 score, or it's, the two is often as a uh, superscript, like it's D squared. And this is a score that's calculated by five different factors. And not surprisingly, they start with ABC and two start with D. You get one point for age, you get one point if the blood pressure is elevated, either uh, systolic pressure over 140 or diastolic over 90. You get points for clinical features, that's the C. Two points if there's unilateral weakness and one point for speech disturbance. And then they look at duration, two points if it's more than 60 minutes and one point for 10 to 59 minutes and zero points if it's less than 10 minutes. And then 
you get one point for diabetes. And you add these up, your score ranges from zero to seven. And if the score is zero to three, it's considered low risk. If it's four to five, you're moderate. And seven to six, uh, six to seven rather, it's high risk. The problem is it doesn't predict all that well. It misses a lot of stuff. And so people have tried to improve on this. They've added imaging. And so you'll see the ABCD2-I score. Um, even with, with the modifications, the accuracy still hasn't been that good. Uh, the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, NICE, which is out of the UK, actually recommends against using it. So recently, a bunch of Canadian researchers developed what they call the Canadian TIA score. And they recently published a paper in the British Medical Journal that uh, looked at this in a prospective cohort. They had previously derived their prediction rule of what factors were important. And in this paper, they had 7,600 7, uh, patients of whom 1.4% had a stroke within a week and 1.1% had carotid stenting within seven days. And so they then got a chance to see how well their prediction uh, you know, did in this very large real world population. The, uh, the factors that they look at are, first, is it your first TIA in your lifetime? That gets you two points if it is. Do the symptoms last more than 10 minutes? That's two points. If you've had any known history of carotid stenosis, that's two points. If you're already on antiplatelet therapy, you're taking an aspirin a day and you still have a TIA, that's three points. Gait disturbance, unilateral weakness, those are each one point, same as with dysarthria or aphasia. Interestingly, if you have vertigo, that's minus three points. So vertigo is uh, unlikely to be a symptom of a TIA. They also look at things like blood pressure. Uh, is there AFib on the uh, ECG? CT showing a new or old infarction, elevated platelet count or elevated glucose or all other factors. And so you add all these up and your score can range from minus three to 23. And they, their goal in this paper was to stratify patients into three groups. A low risk group would have less than a 1% chance of a stroke in the following week. They combined either stroke or carotid stenting. The reason for doing this is to say, who are the people you need to intervene with most urgently? And if your chance is less than 1% of one of these events happening, you're considered uh, a low, low risk. Average risk was one to 5%. And if you have over a 5% chance of having a stroke or needing stenting in the next week, you'd be considered very high risk. So this is what they looked at, and they were able to stratify the population with about 16% of the people being evaluated were classified as low risk, and about 12% were considered high risk, and everyone else was classified as uh, intermediate risk. So they felt that this was a valid way of classifying patients. They also compared it to both the ABCD2 and the ABCD2 I-score and felt uh, or showed that it was better at classifying patients for risk of stroke than either of these other scoring systems. Okay, so um, it sounds like they've done a nice job um, trying to establish uh, a new diagnostic tool and compared it to the current standards of care. What management strategies would be appropriate based upon the different risk categories? So again, assuming that you have a less than a 1% risk, they would recommend you just get a CT scan, which of course is needed for their score. 
and then have routine follow-up for the patients. These are low-risk patients. There's less than 1% risk of something bad happening. For people who are at high risk, they recommend getting a neurologist, uh, a neurology consultation in the emergency department right away. And then for everyone else, what is needed is CT angiography and a rapid follow-up. Uh, you know, the basic workup for the stroke, uh, looking at the carotids, things like that. Uh, this should be happening on an urgent basis for people who are at medium risk. And this is roughly how you know, these risk, the management of these risk categories is roughly how I think patients are managed right now. But the difficulty we have now is we have a harder time really feeling confident of people who are low risk. And so I think more and more people get treated as either medium or high risk. I think you're absolutely right. I think we tend to err on the side of being super aggressive urgently. Um, what about Al? Should we be, in addition to getting a CT, do we need to start him on aspirin or do we need to do anything else? Well, I think, you know, th there's good uh, data that came out, uh, oh, I think a year or two ago, showing that after TIA, uh, dual antiplatelet therapy especially in the first week, it can be quite effective. So I would be putting him on aspirin and, and clopidogrel. Um, but he needs, I think he needs further evaluation uh, than the information that we have. Uh, he certainly needs to have some blood tests done, check his platelet count, again, uh, check uh, blood sugar, and he, then he needs to have the CT scan. And then based on that, uh, I think he's probably going to be at least moderate risk. You get two points for having the first TIA, which would be the case in him. He gets one point for the dysarthria. So that's three points right there. And uh, three points was their cutoff for the low risk. So I think that uh, there's a good chance he's going to need uh, additional evaluation. And uh, that, that would be what I would suggest. He needs to be having blood tests and CT scan. Uh, you know, if he's in your office, that would be the next step. I think I think you're right. I think I would agree with putting him on dual platelets um, right off the bat, um, and you know, counsel both him and and his wife uh, on what to do should they have any further symptoms change. We know that it's it's challenging to get some studies rapidly, but um, in this case, when you when you describe it as a TIA, hopefully your institutions will be uh, more willing to let you get. Um, carotid ultrasounds uh, fairly quickly and a CT angiography. Alan, um, pretty cool. It's nice to have something that's even more valid than what we currently use when we assess TIA. And as the population ages, this is going to be a recurring theme in our practice. So it's great to have this review. Yeah, you know, the one thing uh, they talk in the paper about the need to probably develop a app for the phones so people can just plug in the numbers or some of the MedCalc calculators that are out there will probably add it in the near future. So in the meantime, you know, if you print out the paper, you can uh, just keep it handy for reference. Uh, but I expect to see it part of standard medical calculators before too long. Alan, thanks again. Thanks, Frank. Practice pointer. The period of greatest risk for stroke following a TIA is in the first week. Join us next time when we talk about how to identify peripheral neuropathy in our patients with diabetes. Thank you for listening to Frankly Speaking About Family Medicine, brought to you by PrimeMed. To claim credit and receive additional information about the article referenced in today's episode, visit primemed.com slash podcast and see you next week.